Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of the Commercial Connection Podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Taylor. It is great to have you with us today. I'm excited to, to go back and forth and, and just pick, pick the brain of our guest, Logan Freeman. Logan is a key principal and co-founder and chief development officer of FTW Investments. He oversees the company's acquisitions and investment strategies. He's also He also personally selects all key investment markets and asset classes to meet the goals of investors. And he's a former NFL player. So Logan, thank you so much for joining us. We sure appreciate it. Spencer, it's my pleasure to be here. I've been following you, your journey, and your company for quite some time. We chatted over a year ago, and you are serving an unserved market in the commercial real estate space, and one that I'm excited to pick your brain on as well sometimes. So happy to be here, excited for the conversation today. Logan, thank you so much. Those are That's really kind of you. I, I sincerely appreciate it. You, you so... Um, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I feel like you're an influencer on social media. You, I believe you inspire a lot of people. Uh, I don't know. You just kind of break down these mental barriers with people. Mm -hmm. You always put out great content. You have a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and so it's a, it's a great honor to have you on the show before we dive in though. Tell us a little bit about what it was like, um, college football, um, American collegiate football player, and, you know, going to the Oakland Raiders. Yeah, so, you know, I, I want to step back to Jefferson City, Missouri, which is, you know, my hometown, uh -huh. capital Missouri, for anybody who didn't know that. But right. I, I, grew, I grew up, you know, walking in a field, picking up square base bales of hay and putting them on the back of a truck. Like, that's what I did. Yeah. And so I'm a small town uh, individual that has, you know, moved to a larger town. But anyways, you know, I always had this work ethic that my mom kind of ingrained in me that I think is very important for, for all facets of life, but more, more or less important, especially whenever you become an entrepreneur or somebody that is a solopreneur or a founder of a company. And so, or just, you know, working as an individual in a company, wanting to maybe do something different. And, you know, this work ethic allowed me to apply what I would call a lot of energy uh, to athletics. I found my outlet in athletics. You know, uh, my father battled drugs and alcohol his whole his whole life. And uh, seven years ago, I lost my father to that battle. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my mom picked up the slack. You know, she she was there. She was constant. She was always working hard, two jobs to put us in private schools, everything, you know, and I, I think I, you know, have this mentality of, okay, well, if there's something I'm, you know, setting out to do, I'm going to overdo it, right, and I was talking to an army ranger uh, recently, he said, if there's anything worth doing, it's worth overdoing, and I said, that's why you're an army ranger, you know, now, that energy needs to be focused in the right way, um, and, and in my early career, and my early life, I didn't always focus it in the right areas, but um, I did focus it in athletics. I found an outlet there and I was able to uh, take all my energy and just pour it into athletics. So uh, repetition was key for me growing up. And I was just kind of this guy that would show up. I'm, I'm a big guy. So I had, you know, pretty decent, you know, chemical makeup, I guess you could say DNA to, to be an athlete. My dad was a great athlete. 
Um, but I just worked really, really hard in high school, in college. And that's what kind of got me to the next level. I had this mentality of when well, I was a football player. And so I was an offensive lineman and it's not a you know glorious job, you know, running into another 300 pound individual, every single play, you know, you never get the ball. You never get any pats on the back necessarily from the fans, but all of your running backs and receivers and quarterbacks always love you if you, you do a good job. And so it was just kind of this mentality of like the, the unsung hero a little bit, like put the work in, you're a part of this team and this is your job. Go do it really, really well. And, you know, I just continued to, um, you know, do repetition. So every single day at practice, I remember doing these drills. It was, Hey, you step here, you move here, you do this. And we just did it over and over again. And what I learned was that when you are in the battle, when you are in the middle of the game, if you have to think you've lost, you have to be able to have mental uh, or muscle memory, I guess is what they used to call it. And so you just have to know what to do. Well, how do you apply that into the business life? That's what that's one thread. The second thread is, OK, never quit mentality. So I'd be running down the field. We were a big passing team. So we threw the ball a lot. We had these long plays a lot of times. I would be the guy that'd be locking up with some D lineman. 15 yards down the field and blocking him until he fell down or I fell down or I got a flag call. You know, I, I tried not to give very many flags called, but at the end of the day, I was just this guy that would just show up every single play. And so in college, I had no idea that I was going to be, you know, looked at for the NFL. So, you know, I had a successful career. I was an ESPN, all academic, all American, all American football player, but I was, I'm undersized guy, you know, six, two, 300 pounds playing left tackle in a division two small school. Like nobody's going to really look well, the scout, I remember the Carolina Panthers showed up to practice one day. It was my senior year. And I said, man, what, you know, who's he here to, to watch? And my O-line coach called me in and, and he's like, Hey, you need to go meet this scout. And I was like, He's here to see me, you know, so it just never clicked that I could be that guy, but they saw that on film, just, just showing up every play and blocking till the whistle, you know, being tenacious, having that tenacity. And so I've applied that same, I think, mental model or philosophy to business and to my personal life as well. And I've been able to cut out noise. You know, I didn't date in college and it wasn't because I was 335 pounds. I was a good looking guy. Okay. But I was, I was focused, you know, I was focused on, Hey, I got a scholarship. I, I didn't have any money in my pocket. I was like, you know what? I'm going to show up. I'm going to go to class. I'm going to get good grades and I'm going to show up to practice every single day. And so, I mean, that's, it's, you know, it's easy said, but it's hard to do every single day. And so, you know, especially when people aren't looking at you and as an entrepreneur, you know, where I'm sitting in my office, you're sitting in your office, nobody's got their thumb on me saying, hey, you know, you need to show up every single day, except for me. And when you start taking that ownership of that process, that's when you can start to really succeed in life. When you know that the onus is on you, not on anybody else, to be better, to be more of what you were the day before. That's when success, I think, really starts to set in, or at least what I'm trying to call and coin this magnetic force that that is pulling things towards you. And so, um, you know, through this process, you know, I, I made it to the NFL. I was an undrafted free agent. And, you know, I was out there at camp. My claim to fame is that I beat out a few guys that were drafted. They got sent home. Uh, three guys after the first day of practice left. We hadn't even put pads on. We didn't have anything on. They left. They said, this is just, this is not for me. This is too hard. They went home, you know? And so I was able to stay out there for a few weeks, but ultimately I was cut from the team and I did not make the practice squad and make anything. Uh, and at that time I had kind of this inflection point or this decision 
to make. Um, and I knew it was going to be a big one for me, but I've got, I'm not going to show everybody, but I got scars on this shoulder, on this shoulder. I've torn an MCL. I've broken an ankle. Every one of these fingers has been pushed the wrong way. Okay. I just figured out that, Hey, it's time to use my mind, not my brawn or my body to go make some money and, and make me who I am. And so I, I made that decision. I went back to school, got my master's degree, and I had to take a job because I didn't have a scholarship anymore. So I didn't have any money. Um, and so I had, you know, as an undrafted free agent, you don't make, you know, money, you get enough money to live out there, but they don't, they don't really give you any money. And so I was, uh, you know, making 265 cold calls a day. I turned my car to the classroom on wheels. And so I, I found uh, audiobooks. I found podcasts. This was back when John Lee Dumas uh, and Lewis Howes were the top, the top guys, you know, school of greatness and entrepreneur on fire. And I'm not even sure Audible was around at that time, um, but I was listening to these guys. And then I had physical CDs, Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, Jim yeah. Rohn, Brian Tracy, uh, Tom Hopkins, all these guys in my car all the time. And it just was this mental shift because I, I realized I needed to change my identity. I, I had identified as an athlete my whole life. I lost hundred pounds in six months. I was no longer an athlete. I had a full-time job of going to school at night. Who are you going to be, Logan? That's the question I asked. And thankfully, I turned to some great mentors, reading and podcasts and in my life to say, I'm going to model it after that. And that allowed me to, to get a foundation, right? A foundation that, hey, I hit rock bottom because after all of that happened, I was getting ready to go out for my first job. I was the youngest franchise consultant that Jimmy John's ever hired. The month that I was to leave is when I lost my dad. Okay. He, he came up to Warrensburg, moved me out with his truck, couldn't make it up the stairs. I said, man, something's wrong. Two weeks later, he's gone, mm. you know, dead. And so at, at the end of the day, it was another decision point was like, okay, life is choices and the decisions that you make are going to impact where you go. And so that was a big, a big piece of, of who I am today was thankfully I had been diving in and building this new foundation of my faith and, and all these, you know, new principles that I was implementing in my life. They came naturally to me because uh, through athletics, they ingrain that stuff in you. They just don't name it the same way because if they did, it wouldn't be attractive to people. But, you know, discipline, you know, focus, attention, yeah. attention to detail, repetition. None of that sounds fun, you know, but that's what creates the freedom. You know, Jocko Willink's a big mentor of mine and he, he says discipline equals freedom. I got t-shirts that say it, you know, and always trying to remind myself. And so, you know, when my dad passed away, it was another, okay, who are you going to be, Logan? And I grasped on to all of these, um, you know, mentors in my life. And, and that kind of allowed me to, to start thinking differently and create a new identity of somebody who wanted to take control of their destiny. And, um, you know, the limiting belief that I had was, hey, I'm a small town boy. I don't, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I, I know how to work hard, but I don't know all of the strategies to become successful, so to speak, you know, um, in the world's eyes, right? And so I think that was the biggest, you know, uh, belief that I had to crush. And after, and the, the way that it happened was after I lost, you know, my, my identity as an athlete, I lost my father, I was at rock bottom, so to speak. Physically, I was in the best condition of my life. I was the number one um, indoor rower ranked in the world. Uh, sorry, in, in the United States, I was second in the world, uh, all-time world record, which has now been crushed, but I was 0 0.07 off of the 500 meter. 113.7 was the, was the record. 114 is what I did that. Go get on a concept two rower and try to row 500 meters and see how long it takes you. So I, that was the type of guy I was, but mentally I was unstable. You know, I, 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 I did not have 
uh, relationships. I did not know what love was in my life. And so uh, thankfully, I met my wife who completely shifted a lot of that for me, but it gave me a foundation, at least something to grasp onto to say, okay, I've hit rock bottom. I'm here. It didn't kill me. I'm still here. I got an opportunity to, to think differently and be different. And that is what has propelled me. And that's what nobody sees. That's seven years, yeah. seven years of mindset, seven years of studying, seven years of trying to become better, of taking old beliefs and saying, you know what? I, I don't think that's right. You know, and that's okay. Even if it's somebody that you respect that tells you something, you don't have to accept it for truth. You got to go find your own truth in this life. And, and that's what I, I always urge our investors, our partners, our employees to do is, hey, if I say something, ask me why, you know, and let's talk about that. Because if it's unfounded on, on nothing or uh, limiting beliefs, then it's not the right thing. And I, I, the only people I've ever taken advice from were people that I would like to live the life that they were living. And I think that is so crucial. And here's the thing I've learned about that too, is, you know, like, do you think about Leonardo da Vinci or uh, some of these other really successful guys, the art, the work that they created was incredible, but their personal lives, maybe not so the same, you know, and there's plenty of models that we can say that uh, today. So, you know, frankly, I look for people who are well-rounded, you know, they've been successful, but they are open to everything and attached to nothing. And that is crucial in this life. You cannot be attached to your old beliefs. If so, you'll just stand where you are currently. And if you want to, that's okay. That was another piece, Spence, that I had to, I had to really think through is I wanted to force this new identity on other people. And I, I found out that that was repelling. That was not magnetic. That was repellent. It was like I was wearing insect spray. You know, my old friends were like, who, what, who is this? You know, what is he doing? And, uh, but that changed my, you know, the circle of influence that I, that I also run around with as well. So um, you have to get around people that are thinking differently, that are open to new ideas, that are not going with mainstream media. And that's what I've done, being a contrarian, you know, on a regular basis. And uh, I think that's what allows us to, to think differently, be a little bit different than, than what, what you might see out there all the time and, and act a little bit differently. That was a long answer. Well, so I'm listening to you just kind of share what's on your mind here. And I, I think the phrase and, you know, we use it with our kids and it's the phrase that I can do hard things. Right. And, and there's right. something there's something about starting something, you know, that's that's going to be hard. Right. That's right. Like like that takes like courage and yes. faith. Right. It just takes a lot. But then, but then you're, you're in the grind and you're doing it. And I don't know if it's like the purpose helps you realize who you are, or is it like the actual work, but there's something there that is like, okay, I, I know better, better after of who I am and, and like my purpose and what I want to do and the kind of father I want to be and husband I want to be, yep. I know, like, all of that, right? All the important who, who do I want to be questions is found like down in the trenches, like down yep. when you're like grinding and you're working and you have this purpose in your life. And I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, I think your, your thread here is, is, is very uh, congruent and it's congruent yeah. because uh, I just started a new book by Richard Koch and uh, Richard wrote 80, 20. He wrote, uh, he's written some amazing books, but 
he has a new book out called Unreasonable Success. Mm-hmm. And Unreasonable Success is focused on taking the 20 people that he's identified that have been very successful and giving people nine things that these people have done, or some of them have done, haven't done, a roadmap, right? That they can go build this, this life. So I'm, I'm, re- I'm reading this book. And the first thing that they say, the first point on the map that all of these folks started was an unwavering self-belief. Yeah. And, and that got me thinking this morning on my walk. I said, okay, well, how do you build that? Well, I have some great people in my life. I posed that question to them. And the best answer I got back was simply, you make yourself promises and you keep them. Yeah. Yeah. That is the motivating factor. Yeah. Make promises with yourself and then you keep them because then you start to really, really one, trust yourself, but you respect yourself. Yeah. And when you respect yourself, you hold yourself to a higher standard. When, when the going gets tough, you push through. So I think that it all starts here, but you have to ask yourself the right questions. You have to keep those promises that folks are making to themselves. And when you don't is when you can kind of start being, um, uh, this is not politically correct, but the, you know, the floor mat, you don't, you never want to be a floor mat. You right. want to be the person that, you know, is respecting themselves and trusting themselves and has that self-belief that allows them to continue to move forward. Yeah. Logan, we could probably end the podcast here and everyone will be just happy with this. <laughs> but I, like, there's part of me that says what you just outlined is going to really give huge context to this question that I really want to ask you. And that question yes. is, why should someone consider investing in commercial real estate? Yep. And I want to pick your so brain about it. this. I want to pick your brain about sure. this because you, you've, you've, done duplex and small multifamily in fact you've done a lot of that right right done a lot (laughs) and and you now now you know you now you're doing commercial and so uh i think i look at commercial and i see wild benefit to it sure i see i see wild benefit to residential like residential rentals and whatnot my dad my dad owns like 10 rentals and he's he has he loves being a landlord he loves going over there and like changing out the sprinkler head you could not get him ever to hire a property manager like to him it's like that is so beneath him yeah he loves like he just loves like oh let me go install a water heater and you know my dad's in his mid-60s there's going to come a day when he can no longer do that but until then he's going to do it but But this idea of why someone should consider, uh, like, take a serious look at transitioning over to commercial, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to pick your brain about that and get ready because I want to go deep on some of the things here just to get a clear understanding and the context, you know, the context of, of, you know, behind this question. So why? Well, I think the first the first point that I'll make on this is, you know, taken straight from the way that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett think about all of their investments. And I'm also reading Sam Zell right now too. And, you know, potentially one of the most successful, uh, you know, real estate investors of all time. And Mm -hmm. the question is the same for both of these guys or both of these groups is, okay, well, what's the opportunity cost? Meaning what compared to what? So if I think about investing in commercial real estate, what am I comparing that to? Right. And Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey was an impactful book for me this year already. And he always says he says it in a different way. Let's get relative. So when you're thinking about making a decision, 
you have to think about it from a framework that has been successful previously. And so what I'm always looking at is modeling successful people. Look, what we're doing in this life, unless you are in high tech, artificial intelligence, and some stuff that I don't know about, everything has been done before, especially in the real estate space, okay? Now, you might argue that point with WeWork and some of the other technology and prop tech, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fundamentals of wealth building. And the fundamentals of wealth building are basically uh, rooted in a tangible asset. And so the first point I want to make is, what what else are you comparing this to? Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, okay, there's typically the way that we think about investing. Um, there's there's an acronym. I always joke that, you know, I was I was a football player, like we mentioned, and uh, I was hitting the head really hard a lot, and so I have a hard time remembering things sometimes. But um, I have to use an acronym for for everything, and so uh, we created an acronym. I stole this acronym from somebody. It's called the Ideal investment. And it just stands for income, depreciation, equity buildup, appreciation, and leverage. And if an investment fits those five criteria, then it can be very, very successful if done the right way. So that's the model that you start with. So compared to what? Okay, now let's go figure out the ideal investment. Okay, after you understand the fundamentals of the ideal investment, and, and typically, Commercial real estate allows for each one of those pieces of the ideal investment, uh, depreciation being a big one that we'll talk about. I think you have to now say, okay, well, how do I get access to this? And so access, knowledge, relationships, and experience, okay? And access to the deals, but also access to the capital that are needed to do these deals. Mm -hmm. And so now we're talking about having the best in class management team to focus on actually making sure these investments go the right way. Well, what Sam Zell did that I, I think is so important and, and paramount to his success was back in the 70s, late 70s, when there was a real estate crash booming. This is when the REITs started to make loans, short-term loans to developers. We had oversupply in the United States. He backed off and said, I'm done buying for right now. I'm going to build a property management company And I'm going to create a fixed rate instrument. So he started making loans uh, to these properties uh, from the banks. So basically, he allowed himself to say, look, I know the banks will not want to manage these assets. They don't have the capacity to do it. So he went and built a property management team to, to handle $4 billion of assets. That's a large team. He was ready when the storm hit with dry powder and the management team. So access management, which is experience and relationships. And so once you understand, you have to compare it to what else you have access to or available availability to, you then go to the ideal investment. And then out of that ideal investment, what do I have that I can bring to the table? If I have no knowledge, if I have no experience, no relationships or access to these deals, how the heck am I going to do this? Mm-hmm. So then that takes you on a different route, which is okay. I can go try to do it myself. It might take me three years. I'm working a full-time W-2 job. I have a real estate deal that I you know, bought a long time ago for my business or for some other reason. Uh, it's appreciated greatly. What the heck do I do with it? I'm not a real estate investor. So then you, you start to find relationships that are, that have that management and experience and access. And so it, it's kind of a, a fluid process, I would say. 
Um, but the reasoning, the reason I'm trying to kind of give this framework to think about is, is because if you look back to uh, the successful investors in, in any uh, what I'll call discipline, um, I'm going to I'm going to point to Tiger 21. And Tiger 21 is an ultra wealthy group that gets together, shares best practices. You have to have 10 million of, of investable assets available. So just to get into the club, most of them have hundreds of millions. And they're always you know, showing up and talking about what they're allocating to. Okay, their top two allocations, private equity, real estate. Real estate has gone through the roof the last 12 months. Why? Because it's not correlated to the broader equities markets like the stock market. The stimulus-driven millennial who has a phone and downloads an app called Robinhood cannot impact Tiger 21's assets. They can impact everybody's that are in the stock market, as we saw earlier this year with GameStop and AMC. Yeah. So I'll stop there. I have more to talk about on this, another model to present, but that's kind of the three components that I try to always walk people through uh, before you know we, we dive into the specifics. So it says that on your website, it says you've acquired over 225 doors. Give us like a high level view of what happened A to Z, like what, like what went into you, what went into that, you know, your rate of acquisition must have been crazy fast. I don't know. I'm curious to know just how could you do that in such, to me, what seems like a short time. And then I'll follow up with that, like, okay, why did you move from concentrating on doors to doing the commercial, the commercial asset class? Sure. So our company now, uh, today, we just closed on another deal last week. We have a thousand units of multifamily. We have four neighborhood retail shopping centers, a large mixed use asset component with office, industrial, and some retail. We have two hotels and we're working on our next office project right now. So I have exposure to a lot of different asset classes. Now, what I will say, the transition from the single family space, okay? What happened there was I was representing a $50 million fund that was buying properties here in Kansas City. After I did a Corvest portfolio refinance with that fund, that uh, I sat down with those sponsors and said, where'd the money come from? And they mentioned it was a syndication. I'd never heard that word before. So I went on the education circuit and started modeling after the successful syndicators that I wanted to think about. So, um, and, and the reason I, I said, well, that's what I wanna do. And the reason being was, and I'm not gonna do it on single family homes, market dynamics, scale. Those were the two points that, that uh, really focused me on the commercial side of things, okay? When I started thinking about, okay, well, if I wanna go get 265 doors, 1,000 doors, 2,000 doors, you know, 100 million of assets, whatever it is, well, what's the best route to get there? Not only from an income standpoint, but really what's the best tax advantage way to get there? And how do I do that at scale? And that's when I jumped into commercial and multifamily because I saw the opportunity from a tax standpoint and a scalability standpoint that this is a business. When you think about people who are managing 50, 75, 25 single family homes and the income that they're generating to manage those properties is a lot different than the income that's that's you know generated from a 450 unit apartment complex, right? So you get a different level of management experience and team that allows you to really make better decisions and have better reporting. I'm also learning that in this business, uh, analytics are crucial. If you can't understand what's going on across your whole portfolio at any given time, how can you manage effectively? 
How can you know what's happening? Typically, we get reports back you know, from property managers, hopefully on a weekly basis, but a lot of times monthly. Well, if it's a month too late, you got 30 days that you don't know what was happening in your property. So uh, you have to get exposure to that. So the, the single family home space, I saw the market shifting in Kansas City. We had more people wanting to purchase single family homes, therefore bidding up the prices so we could no longer go in at 70% ARV minus our renovation costs. So the model wasn't working. So that was the first clue. The second was, hey, I'm not going to build this. What year, 20... Logan, what year was this? 2017. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. So right before kind of, I mean, it was hot then too. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. But we could at least still get the, the deals that we, we were looking for. And 2018 came. It was gone. You know, it was like a shift. Kansas City hit on a big market. We had a lot of outside capital coming in looking for single family homes. We had 1031 exchangers. We had all of these people, big private equity firms, similar to the ones that I was working at, uh, but much larger, you know, paying a price that, you know, I wouldn't pay, but they're probably looking like heroes now, you know, right, with all the single family home stuff that's, that's out there. But when I looked at the business that I wanted to build, how fast I wanted to grow it, and what I wanted to do, I said, okay, well, Where's the trend going in relation to need? Supply and demand, okay? What can I go purchase, okay? So I understood the market dynamics, but the second piece was scalability. If I wanna go buy 265 single family homes, I probably have to buy, I have to probably do 200 transactions to get those. I did not want to do that. Yeah. I wanna do 12 transactions, 10 transactions. Yeah. I, am not, I am not on the transaction treadmill anymore. And um, I coined a term transactional anxiety because when you think about a transaction, you have people on both sides all the time. And then inside of that, you have vendors. And how do, how do you manage 200 of those a year? No, thank you. I did it. Don't want to do that. I'd rather go do one a month and have my volume be 10 times as much as those 265 single family homes. So market dynamics, scalability allowed me to see clearly that commercial, multifamily, and that type of asset was what I wanted to focus on. Well, kind of going back to your point, it's uh, it's that opportunity cost, right? Like that's right. Managing managing, you know, if you did if you did twenty deals a month, yeah, single family homes, right? It, 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 and and like that's twenty different file folders. That's Woo. instead of instead of a twenty plex or a twenty four plex or you know something like that. That's one file folder, right? And it's it's, it's one inspection, it's one loan, right? Right, all right. of it. There's yep. so much clarity around things that you you know and understand because it's all there right in front of you, right? So, so that opportunity cost, the scalability cost, like the scalability element, man, it is tough to go around when you have 225. Like you're someone someone has to drive to each location. That's right. As opposed to a couple different apartment complexes, you're like cutting, you're cutting it down. Absolutely. You're cutting like the labor, the labor element down by 75% probably. Yes. The other point I want to make too, Spencer, on this was I had a, a seasoned veteran come up to me and say, man, what are you doing residential for? You know, multifamily. He goes, why are you not? I would never want a person living in my property. And I was like, <laughs> you know, is open to everything attached yeah. to nothing. Okay. Let me hear. Yeah. This guy's been around for a long time, super yeah. successful. Tell me, tell me why. He said, I want to deal with a business owner that has a business going on in my property and they leave it at, at night. They have people showing up, so it has to stay clean. I mean, he had the best argument around why he would never touch a residential deal. And I said, 
well, man, I've never really thought about that, you know? And so I think that's another component too, is when you're dealing with businesses, especially nationally based businesses or regionally based businesses, they have a balance sheet. They have the ability to pay rent. They have different type of risk profile than uh, in they have longer leases, right? So all of that got me really excited about, man, I need to learn this game, understand lease structures, understand tenant improvement costs, understand how to place a tenant uh, and deal with that. So it, it just gave me the opportunity to think at a higher level and deal with people uh, that are frankly a little more professional, uh, a little less emotional in some capacity, not always, but and sometimes. And it was, hey, if the data works, the analytics work, if the numbers work, we can make this work, which allow you to get much more creative on structure and on acquisition strategy. And so residential, single family, small multifamily does not allow you to do that. So I think I'll add the, that third piece is, you know, we, we talked about the market dynamics, scalability. The third piece is professionalism. You know, we're talking about a business here. And so that was a big piece of it. Um, the last one that I'll touch on, on this, on this part of the segment here is, okay, when you're thinking about building a portfolio, yes, income is important. Appreciation is important, but we're in a we're in a, a segment right now in our cycle where a lot of people are talking about inflation. A lot of people are talking about interest rates. Well, how the heck do you hedge against inflation? Well, you go get some great debt that's a fixed rate instrument and let inflation fly off the roof. You pass through the inflation to your customer. That is one of Warren Buffett's prime uh, business and investment philosophies. The way that you deal with inflation is you invest in businesses and assets that allow you to pass that cost on to your customer. Think about that for a little bit if you're listening to this. You want to stop there? No, no, keep going. Okay. And the second part is, okay, well, if I go purchase a lot of single family homes, what can I do from a depreciation standpoint? Tax benefits are one of, if not the most important component to a lot of investors. Keeping more of what you make legally, doing it the right way, is so important. Well, commercial allows you to, to apply cost segregation studies, which, you know, thanks, thanks, I believe, to Donald Trump and the administration there uh, allowed for bonus depreciation in year one. Meaning a lot of times with these real estate deals, people have a five-year hold time. Well, typically with a commercial property, tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, straight line depreciation is 37 and a half, or is it? I think it's 39 years. 30, 39 years. And a half. Yeah. 39 years before you can fully depreciate your property. Bonus depreciation allows you to take a large chunk of that the first year. Bonus depreciation also uh, doesn't really make sense, or cost segregation, sorry, studies don't really make sense unless a property is a million dollars or more. Um, so, what are we talking about here? Single family homes are not a million dollars, not not here in Kansas City uh, for investment properties. Maybe if you're buying in L.A. and and renting out to, you know, athletes or something, I don't know, movie stars. But that's not what I'm doing. And so I needed to find properties that fit that criteria because most of our investors said, hey, I need to focus on tax and having tax advantage strategy. And so uh, bonus depreciation through cost segregation studies allows us to pass that through to our investors. And that is a humongous benefit. Uh, to most of our investors and to, to investing in commercial and larger assets. Yeah. Again, it's the scalability element of it. Okay. I want to, I want to pick your brain about your shopping centers. Sure. 
because we we like we we love retail. Uh, well, we like a certain kind of retail, right? Absolutely. Um, we're very sensitive to the, the Amazon threat. Sure. And so I I want to I want to pick your brain. Okay, you said retail anchors. Why? What what is it in retail you see that you find interesting that tickles your brain a little bit? Okay. So I have coined a term, or I stole this term from somebody, but we focus on neighborhood retail shopping centers that are e-commerce resistant and service based. Okay, so big old mouthful to say that, hey, we love dollar stores. Yep. We love tenant mixes that not one tenant has more than 25%. We love hardware stores, tire centers. The, the things that Amazon can't necessarily affect right now, okay? And that was the first component. The second component to why we like these centers, um, you know, sparsed right in, in front of, uh, you know, all of these single family homes is, hey, I know my wife loves to go get her nails done. I, I know she loves to go out to eat. I know she loves experiences. And we're, that's, I don't think that's going to change either. So that was the second component. But the third component was I got to watch kind of how these centers uh, were go going to perform during COVID-19 when we had lockdowns and, and restrictions. And guess what? What happened to hardware stores? What happened to dollar stores? They were essential businesses. Boom. They, boom. they were essential businesses. They did not shut down. Guess what? Retail sales went through the roof on those, those asset classes, or sorry, those tenants. So I think you have to make sure you have the right tenant mix. You have to have a great team on the leasing side of things. But when you think about diversification inside of a real estate portfolio, having uh, some of your income from businesses that are e-commerce resistant, service-based businesses that did well during COVID-19, and everybody knew they were going to do well probably during COVID-19, uh, was very important. The third piece of this, Spencer, is, hey, I love Amazon. I do. I use it to buy books almost daily, Okay. I use it to buy toilet paper because I don't get to the store. I, I, I'd use that stuff. But I also know that not everybody, actually a majority of the United States of America does not shop like I shop. They have a budget. They have a certain amount of dollars. They're very cost conscientious. And uh, because they have a certain level of income and they're fine with that, but they're going to go coupon clipping. They're going to go to the store. They're going to find the deal on clearance and they're going to continue to shop. And, um, you know, for me, understanding that I live in the Midwest and watching the trends of that, when people's incomes were reportedly going down minus the stimulus checks, you know, what did they do? They still went to those places that that did not change people's psychological behaviors. Yeah. And so if you have the right tenants in these kind of centers, you have a good mix, you have a, maybe a, a national anchor tenant, like a or a regional tenant like an Ace Hardware or Dollar Tree or Dollar General or Family Dollar, all deals that I've, I've done, closing one next week. You know, I think that you can um, think about your end user and who's gonna be shopping at your center and make sure your tenant mix is really, really strong. If that's the case, these assets can do very, very well. Now, the only piece that I'm having a little struggle with is, you know, finding financing for these assets, okay? Local community banks that are in the markets and they know the assets are still very strong, okay? Yep. But that's not scalable to me because they have legal lending limits and I don't like signing on recourse all of the time, right? I mean, we will and we have a lot, but I have to realize that 
you know, lending and the, the financing that I can get for a project is going to impact it uh, very, very strongly. And so, you know, what we saw during COVID-19 was a lot of banks, a lot of lending related, you know, institutions say, you know what, we're going to drop our LTVs. And actually, we're not looking at that asset class. So that impacted it quite a bit. Now that has come back. We're closing a deal next week, five-year fixed, 3.75% for 25-year AM. And this is a neighborhood retail shopping center. So, I mean, you tell me that's not uh, that's not great debt. Now, great relationship that I have. All of that to be said, it can be done. Um, but we're seeing those lenders, I think, open back up to neighborhood retail and, and good tenant mix shopping center. So I love the asset class. I have not seen the pricing kind of what I'll call arbitrage. I looked at the 12-year trend 12 years ago. Cap rates in Kansas City for these types of assets were about 8.67%. Uh, it's just dropped right below 7% right now. And I'm looking for a 9 or 9.5% uh, cap rate on one of these deals because of the perceived risk from our investors to go in and purchase these assets. So that's a, a long-winded answer to say that uh, you know I think diversification is extremely important. But if you do it right, these can be incredible cash-flowing assets, especially if you manage and you plan uh, for the tenant move-outs the right way. Logan, as we wrap up here, I'm going to ask you to share some advice. You know, we all know young young people who are itching to get into the business, get into sure. maybe what we do, maybe what you do. What advice would you give someone brand new, brand new, just maybe they're barely, maybe a year or two out of, of high school, or maybe they're out of college, and they see this as a path for them, right? They, they yep. see it like a, like a calling. What kind of advice do you give somebody like that? Well, the first piece of advice is after college, your education does not stop. It begins. Hmm. Okay. College teaches you, sorry, college teaches you the way to think. The real world teaches you what to think about. Yeah. So think through that. Does not stop. It begins when your formal education ends. Okay. And the second piece so read, read, read. The second piece is put your time in. Do you think it was fun for me my first year after getting fired, getting in my Chevy Malibu and driving to nine houses per day, underwriting, estimating rehab, putting pro formas together? That was not fun in the snow, in the heat, in the muck. Right. You know, getting chased out by dogs, setting up showings. I mean, all of that stuff, not fun, but I was willing to put in the work. So I got the experience. And what I found was if you can put yourself around somebody playing at the higher level that you want to be at, solve a problem for them. Don't ask for much, solve a problem for them and take some time to learn that can really rocket ship you into success. So read, 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 learn, 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 be a master of networking, give value to people, find somebody playing at the higher level and go model them and spend time with them because you'll see your success go through the roof. That's the advice I would give. Logan, thank you. This is absolutely really good. This is, this is good. I mean, this is good for anyone anyone to know and so thank you for for sharing logan if if someone would like to connect with you how can they reach out to you what's the best way to, to connect with you i appreciate that i'm very active on linkedin so you can yes. find me at logan freeman 
on follow LinkedIn. Logan. Follow Logan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But my, my website, if you're interested in Kansas City real estate, because that we're specialists. Um, that's our circle of competency, right? Another mental model from Charlie Munger is ftwinvestmentsllc.com, ftwinvestmentsllc.com. I got some great information on the blog there. I think people will really, really like. It's a download of my brain every single week uh, put onto the blog. So, uh, and it's, it's, um, it is polarizing. So just be, be ready because I do not hold back. Yeah. Financial advisors, beware because uh, I, I openly, um, you know, engage with those people, but I also do not shy away from the fact of, of why we have, we have chosen commercial real estate and why mainstream media continues to push people into the normal 60, 40 stocks and bonds methodology with high fees. So there's a lot of different articles around that. I think that people will find a lot of value in that. And uh, on LinkedIn, we're sharing five to six posts every single day that I think a lot of people will get value from a mindset standpoint, uh, books that we're reading, uh, you know, activities, deals that are closing, all that good stuff. Cool. Logan, thank you very much for joining us. And for our listeners, now I haven't asked Logan if this is okay, but if you're on LinkedIn and you tag Logan and you ask him a question, I'm going to go ahead and say, you're going to answer it and you're going to engage. I'm going to get to it. You're going to get to it. You know, you're such a giver, Logan. Thank you so much. You're a good example to a lot of people. Appreciate you sharing always what, what you know, things you've learned and things you wish you've learned and just kind of friction along the way. So appreciate it. Yeah. For all of our listeners, if you feel inclined to share this, please share it. There's someone out there who needs this. I promise you that. So 100% on social media repost, like, share, whatever you want to do. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. We do not take your time lightly. And we're really grateful, really grateful you took the time to listen. So absolutely. And until next time, have a good day.